0: Hello and welcome to the NLCC Sermon Podcast. In a moment, we'll listen in on a message from our Sunday morning worship service. But first, if this is your first time tuning into NLCC, we would love for an opportunity to get to know you and walk with you in your faith journey. If you're interested in connecting with this church, head to our website, NorthLiberty.cc and hit the I'm New button or use the links in the description. Our goal is to help you experience the transformational power of God in your life, and we hope and pray that you find that in this message.
1: In light of the nine encounters we studied over the last few weeks, and with the personal testimonies of our own church families, the things that they shared, and the many other accounts we didn't look into or hear from, Uh, Each one is a beautiful picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And each one is a perfect representation of God's love. And as each person encountered uh, Christ, they experienced uh, the true nature of God, and thus their lives were transformed into something pretty amazing. Those lives became Jesus in the flesh. They became real-life examples of people who fell in love with Christ and in turn started to share the good news that the world so desperately needs to hear. That Jesus came into this world to save his people from their sins, that God in the flesh, Emmanuel, is with us. Now next week we're going to be starting our Christmas messages, uh, and those messages will be about the birth of Jesus. The same person that each of the encounters we studied were about. How Jesus came to seek and save those uh, who are lost without having any kind of relationship with him that he came to bring spiritual healing to all mankind, that those who actually seek after God with all of their hearts uh, will find him, according to Jeremiah 21, or 29, that God is with us, that he is faithful, he, he will not forsake us, nor will he leave us. Now, in, in the Christmas messages, we're going to have a little bit of nostalgic reminders and fun through some of the, our favorite family uh, Christmas movies, uh, the ones that introduce some kind of biblical truth as to why we celebrate Christmas, the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. And, now, and to be transparent, we didn't come up with this idea. As Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, churches across the country for a couple of decades have been using these Christmas movies during the holiday celebration. And as they say, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? But before we get into our Christmas season uh, next week, I want to tie together uh, the encounters that we talked about with Christ, the testimonies we've heard, the changed lives that we've experienced, and why we celebrate Christmas. Why, why did and why does God continue to bless his people with grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and joy and peace and love, a transformative life? Well, the the answer to any of those questions about why God came to the earth covered in uh, human flesh in in the form of a little baby born in a a barn to a young Jewish couple is found in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we know the rest of the of this passage, how this ends, that Jesus is going to, to go to he's going to go to the cross, he's to save his people from their sins. But I but I want you to know that Jesus going to the cross doesn't happen unless he comes to earth in the flesh. Born in a barn to a peasant couple from the house of David. And a lot of people are asking, well, what, he, what do you mean by this house of David? Well, a little background on, on Jesus being the, the legitimate and only Messiah from the house of David. Here are a few prophecies about how and why he came. We know Jesus was of Jewish descent uh, and therefore uh, was the seed of Abraham. And all those pictures that we had back at grandma's house and in the old churches back in the day of Jesus being a Caucasian, blonde hair and blue eyes, get that out of your head because Jesus was a Jewish man. In Genesis 22, it says we are told that through the seed of Abraham's offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed and, and we Christians believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. We also know that he is from the line of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, found in Numbers chapter 24. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, we know he is from the line of Jesse or the the father of King David. It says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The fruit or the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then in Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, it, it tells us that he is from the line of King David. It says, these days are coming, declares the Lord, When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. We, we, we have this prophecy that Jesus is from the house of King David found in 2 Samuel chapter seven, which is actually spoken by the prophet Samuel to King David and he says this to him. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, in other words, he's dead and buried, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then you have Micah's prophecy in chapter 5 that he was born into the tribe of Judah in the region of Ephrathah, in the town of Bethlehem. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Remember God saying, let us make man in our image? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the son. He's talking to the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, it says he was born from a virgin. Therefore, the Lord will uh, uh, himself give you a sign that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel, as you will know, means God with us, uh, indicating the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus would be worshiped by shepherds from the, from the desert and the foreign kings would present gifts uh, to him found in Psalm chapter 72 where it says, may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. And so when Jesus was born, if you remember, King Herod murdered all the male babies under two years old to do away with this king that was supposed to have been born. And this is, a, is a predicted in Jeremiah 31 where it says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And in response to this uh, attempt on Jesus' life, Joseph is warned, if you remember, by an angel to flee to Egypt with Mary and Jesus where they stayed until Herod died. And Hosea it says in chapter 11, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then there are many other predicting Jesus' death, but i want to read one from Isaiah chapter 53. And if you have your Bibles open, just follow along, carefully listen to the prophet's words. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, ha- he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Remember the two thieves? Uh, and, and with the rich is in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So far, everything is coming true. Yet, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will heal, heal their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Remember, remember the Roman soldiers? betting on his, uh, uh, gambling for his clothing because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Man, that is just a beautiful story. And that in and of itself just kind of ties everything together. What God does in our lives today, he ties it together and it only happens because of the birth of Jesus. Church, I've only touched on the surface as to why Jesus came to this earth in the flesh, but the foundational reason is because of God's love for those who have been created in his image. After Adam and Eve uh, fell for Satan's schemes and brought sin into the world, uh, God came up with this beautiful plan that would demonstrate his redemptive work in the person of Jesus Christ. Even when Adam and Eve brought brought sin into life, separating us between uh, between God and man, even with our own sin bringing that same separation, God can't and won't stop loving us. And because of that love, he sent his only begotten son as an atonement for that sin. He paid in full the price of our sin through the blood of Christ. And that's why we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, because of God's love. And if you listen to Paul's words to the Roman church, uh, who are struggling, as we do, with understanding this pure, perfect love that casts out all fear and doubt, as the scripture says. In Romans chapter eight, Paul writes this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, referring to Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If it is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. And all that stuff we just talked about, Paul saying, all that persecution, no, God is still conquerors. He, he's the one that gives us strength to overcome any of this. And that's why he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And it was God. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither present or future, nor any powers, height or or depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, there is nothing that I am going to be able to say to you to help you fully understand the love of God. Uh, From the time we are kids, we hear about this word love, right? Right? Uh, the many times when, I, when Terry and I would pick up our kids from kid, uh, children's church at the time, they, we ask them how their story, what, what, what it was about. It was always, most always about the love of God. You, when you put your kids to bed, most of us parents, we sing that one song. They, they sing it in church all the time. You know, Jesus loves me. Each time uh, I get off the phone with my kids, even as adults or when they leave my presence, Terry and I tell them that we love our kids. We do not ever want our kids to leave our presence without them understanding that we love them. When we send our kids off to school, right? Parents, you tell your kids you love them. And when they're going through rough times, we tell them that we love them. And so from the time that we're little kids, we hear about this word love. And I think that's part of the problem that we have in our culture today, in America anyway. You come to worship and you hear about the love of God and, and, and you already feel like you know everything there is to know about, you know, love. And so you've already heard everything you, that you can hear about. It. And so you begin to tune things out. So, how, I mean, how do we understand the true meaning here? Or, or maybe for the first time understanding the love of God. How do we rekindle, rediscover God's love? I mean, we talk about loving sports and food and hobbies and, and, and money and, and movies and careers. It's all, it's, it's, is, is that the same way that God loves us? Even this past week, I've heard people say things like, I love Dr. Pepper. I love McCree's pizza. I love my car. I love my sports, even though my team got beat last night. I can't wait for summer because I love warm weather. I love fresh veggies. I love Thanksgiving. I love turkey. I love Christmas carols. I love Jesus. I love. And the list goes on and on. And so how do we take this word that we've used for everything, and then we say, well, that's how God loves us. How do you explain that? Part part of the problem is that we only have one word in our English language, so so love is a word that we're conditioned to use to describe how we feel about our kids or our grandkids and how we feel about uh, um, a medium-rare steak cooked down on a grill, it's the same word. And so maybe we need to be careful in how we start using, or how we continue to use the word love. But that wasn't a problem for the Apostle Paul. When he wrote the book of Romans, uh, there were a number of words for love that he could have used to describe how God feels about us. He could have used, and this was interesting, it ties in with what Preston was talking about last week when, when uh, he was uh, a third person Peter, when Christ was asking him that, that one question three different times. It's the same thing going on here. And, 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 and he could have used the word eros, Referring to a romantic love that was mostly uh, based on emotion. It was a sensual love that pushed for a physical reaction. Paul could have used the word phileo, which is a word that would have been used most of the time during his day. It's the word you would use to describe how you feel about your family and close friends. Phileo communicates, you know, closeness and loyalty. And if you get angry to the point of sin towards those you claim to phileo love, and you abandon that relationship, then through your own actions, you have demonstrated that you had no deep commitment of love for that relationship, only a shallow one that says you scratch my back and then I'll scratch your back, which implies you only had an eros kind of love for that person. But then there is one other word for love that is the purest. You've heard it before, right? It certainly would have gotten the attention of the Roman Christians and, and even the non-believers of his day because it was a word that wasn't used very often. And it's that word agape. That's the word that, that Paul uses to describe God's love for us. And it means a committed, loyal, long-suffering, selfless love. It's not based on, on what we do. It doesn't ask for anything in return. It, it loves, even when it's not being loved back, God loves us with this unchanging, undeserved, unconditional love. And so agape is better understood through G, uh, stories that Jesus would usually talk uh, tell about the love of God. And one of those stories is found in Luke chapter 15. You know it very well. Uh, a father had two sons and a younger son broke his father's heart and said, Dad, I want the, my share of the inheritance. I, I can't wait for you to die. And so dad gave in, gave his son his inheritance and the scripture says, uh, that he went off to a far country, he spent all that he had on wild living, and when the money ran out, he was hungry, he got a job of feeding slop to the pigs. This is a Jewish kid doing the worst of all jobs, and he's, th- he's thinking, man, these pigs are eating better than I am, maybe I could start eating some of the stuff they're eating, but he comes to his senses, and it says, this is insanity, because even my father's servants are living better than I am living right now. Maybe, maybe if I go home and beg for forgiveness, maybe I'll be lucky. My dad will just treat me like one of the servants. And so he gets his stuff together, and he's headed for home. And during his son's absence, the dad kept watch for his son's return. And it gives you an impression that dad went out every morning, every afternoon, and every evening, waiting every day, hoping and watching and praying for his son's return. And then one day... The father sees a silhouette of his son coming over one of the, the horizons. And as Jesus says, the father ran out to him and put his arms around him, and embraced him, and kissed him. He said to the servant and his older brother, Hey, we're going to throw a party. Get everything ready because, because my son has come home. In other words, uh, my, my son has returned, and what was lost is now found. And this story gives us a, a picture of what God looks like through the heart and character and the eyes of God, right? There is there's another story, though, in the Old Testament that's quite interesting. And when we first studied this in, in, in Bible college, I never really understood it, just being a student there. And, but it, it communicates uh, how God was so eager to, to communicate his love for his people. But, but he knew he had to do something else other than words. And so he tells uh, this this uh, uh, prophet Hosea to go to the city into the red district and uh, and 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 find a prostitute and and marry her. Like this man of God is like, what? Are you serious? He goes, yeah, I'm serious. Go into town, find this prostitute. Her her name is Gomer. Okay. Now it's one thing to marry a prostitute, but to marry a prostitute named Gomer. That that does But you know what Gomer means? It means complete. That's what her name means. But he does what God says. He finds her and marries her. And after some time, he's not just submitting to God's uh, command here. He begins to fall in love with Gomer. And marriage is, is feeling pretty good for Hosea, and then one day he come, comes home, the house is empty, the kids are by themselves, and Hosea gets this, this, this uh, uh, sick feeling in his stomach, and he runs back to the red district where he found Gomer, and there she was in the arms of another man getting ready to go into a cheap hotel. And he's crying out to God here, God, you told me to do this! You asked me to do this and I did it. You asked me to, told me to marry her and I married her. And, and then this happens. You told me to marry her, or a lover, and I did. What am I supposed to do now? And God says, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go back and you're gonna find her again. And you're going to buy her back again. And you're gonna bring her home again. And you're gonna love her again. That's what you're going to do. Why? Why would God tell Hosea to do something so crazy? Well, chapter 3, verse 1 gives us the reason why. So that the people will know. So that the people will understand how much I love them. That just blows my mind. If that doesn't teach us something about the love of God... See, God's love makes no sense. It makes no sense at all, but his love is complete. The sad reality is that we have to come to think of of love in in a way that that falls short of how God actually loves us. And if we were to to be honest, uh, brutally honest, think about why people love you. Just be honest in your own head. Because we've been conditioned to think that there has to be a reason which is all based on how you feel on a particular day because of what's going on in your life at a particular moment. And how whatever that is, that's how you're going to feel about this person. And so most people would say that they love you because. There seems to always be a because. They love me because you're beautiful or because you're funny or they love you because you're successful or because you're generous. They love you because you're kind or you're wealthy because you haven't had any relational marriage conflict, right? Because you're family. That's why I love you. And if you don't think a love almost always has a because, then, then I would encourage you to go to Dollar General or Walmart, any place else, and go to the Hallmark card section and, and look at the reasons why on those, those you know, I love you because... There's always I love you because, a reason right under that. There's a zillion of them, and then it gives all these reasons why somebody loves you. Those because as I put a lot of stress on relationships, expectations on relationships. That's unfair to anybody, but if someone loves you because you're beautiful, what happens when you're no longer beautiful? If, if you're rich at one time, what happens when you lose it all, and you're no longer successful? What happens when, when your, your, your life falls apart? If someone loves you because you're funny, what happens when they discover you're really just annoying? Miss Terry found that out t- t- 38 years ago. <laughs> but seriously, what do you do when you lose all of the because? Church, because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's our relationship with this idea of love. It's conditional and temporary depending on how you react to life experiences. Love love almost always is based on something that you and I bring to the table. But church, love in its purest form just is. We see it so rarely in its purest form that it's hard for us to believe that there is such a love. But let's make no mistake about it, this is how God loves you and I. He doesn't love you because you go to church every week when you could be doing something else. Uh, he, he doesn't love you because you give 10% of your income or more to the church. He doesn't love you because you dress better than somebody else or you're bored on the right side of the tracks. That is not why God loves you. It doesn't have anything to do with anything that you and I do or where we come from. God just loves. Church... The Christmas story, the resurrection or Easter story, that, that's how you explain God's love, at least intellectually. This is the kind of love that changes everything for everyone. I know there are some people uh, who have a hard time believing that God could love anyone like that. And you might, you might think that you're that person. Maybe you believed it at one time, and, and then you stopped believing it because something painful happened, this disappointment by judgmental and hypoc- hypocritical Christians. I, I get all that. But that's not what it's about. It's about God's love, not your definition of love. When we come to understand a love like that, it transforms the heart of an individual. And 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 I'm not sure that even Christians totally understand this because if we did, I think it would show in our relationships in the good times and the bad times. Yes, we can get mad at each other and disappointed with each other, be angry without sinning. We can call each other out but to devour and to hate. To leave family and friends high and dry reveals a condition of one's heart. And if we really understood what it was like to be loved like God loves us, we would, be, we would have a joy and a peace despite any circumstances, health issues, financial struggles, relational conflict, past experiences. We would not be people of bitterness and resentment and hate and people of revenge and malice. When we understand why God loves us, it moves us to be gracious and compassionate and loving and forgiving towards other people because God has done that for us. It's not about keeping a list of rules and expectations, and it's it's not about feeling guilty about some sin you committed yesterday or years ago. It's, It's not about being good enough for God to like you. It is about the love of God. And that is why Paul wrote what he did to the Roman Christians. He feels this desperation to explain what cannot be fully understood, but he knows when we get a little bit, a little taste of what God's love is, it's going to change everything for us. It's going to open our eyes and our hearts. Verse 31 says, what then shall we say in in response to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And if you're like me, when you read that question, who is against us, I can come up with a list of people. But when you put it put this question in context, if God is for us, then it puts all those other minor things in perspective. And then who cares who's against you? Before you even had your first drink of coffee this morning, I'm sure if you have kids in the home, you were already, they were already fighting with each other. Maybe you fought with your wife or husband before you got into the car. Maybe you know tomorrow's going to be a stressful day at work. Guess what? God is for us. Maybe your health isn't so good. Uh, your spouse crushed your heart and you don't know what to do. Guess what? God is for us. You've lost a loved one and you're just overwhelmed and drained emotionally. You, you, you dropped the ball at work this week. Guess what? God is for us. And I don't know what's on your list, but God, guess what? God is for you. And if God is for you, then who can be against us? In the, in the 90s, I got an especially hateful uh, letter from a Christian couple over a matter of opinion, I still have that letter. Um, and, I, and I followed, I, I allowed their opinion to affect me in a very bad way. And I've, and I've had a few of those over the years, but each time something like that happens, I become a little more calloused in my heart, but weirdly enough, more sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that I don't hate on other people that is being demonstrated you know, towards myself or other people. And over time, I've learned to stop giving people uh, a rental space in my head, and in some ways, I carry those ridiculous matter of opinion criticisms as a badge of honor, and at the same time, I feel so sorry for people who call themselves followers of Christ, but act otherwise. We have a joy and a peace of good news, church, that we get to share with the world, and we get so caught up on these little bitty things going on in the world around us that we forget about the big picture. I gave the letter to my dad to read and, and by the following Sunday, my dad had already responded to this, this couple even though uh, uh, he sent it via Pony Express. Back then, you know, in the 90s, you, you still sent things through the mail if you wanted to communicate. But, but think, one thing about my dad he is he loved to express himself in his writings. He loved to write. My dad had a very thick skin and was very hard to offend. And after he became a Christian, he, is, he was a very definition of strength under control. And, but he lit this couple up. He lit them up. The following week, he asked me to come over. He apologized for the way he handled it. And I remember him just saying, son, I, I, I reacted to the, uh, the attacks and hurt that was meant for you. Uh, if, they were on, if they were attacking me, I could handle it so much better. I can handle grace a whole lot better. But when somebody's attacking my loved ones, my family, I'm going to run to the battle line. I'm going to run to the front lines. And uh, I I love you who you are. I, I love what God has been doing through you and you continue to allow Christ to work in you and let this person drown in their own bitterness and jealousy. I love you, son. You see, Big Al, that's what my dad was called back in the day. Big Al was for me, his son. He was for me. If someone came at me and, and my dad found out about it, whether I liked it or not, whether I was embarrassed by some of his, re- his reactions or not, they were gonna have to deal with him as well, right? That, there, was, there, there was never any question on whose side my dad was gonna land on. He was for me. And church, that's exactly how God loves us. It's a love that steps up and a love that protects and a love that defends. And so if God is for us, who can come against us? Verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son. This is the exact same wording that is used in the Old Testament to describe uh, what Abraham did for God with his own son Isaac. And so the example would have been clearly understood by any Jewish reader here. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his own son Isaac out of obedience and loyalty to God. And God intervenes, as you will know, and Isaac is spared. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, you did not spare even your own son. There there is no question, this is an analogy that's being being made by Paul, that God's love for us is the same as Abraham's was for God. In verse 32 it goes on to say, for he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, the world, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? But but who are we for God to be that loving and loyal to us? And so what Paul does here, is he makes an argument uh, from uh, where he goes, from the greater to the lesser here. In other words, if God didn't spare his own son, the greater, then he most certainly isn't gonna spare anything lesser than that to show his love for us. They say something is worth only as much as someone is willing to pay for it. Uh, Well, God clearly determined our worth uh, as a person when he paid the sacrificial price of his only begotten son. That's how valuable we are to God, church. Verse 33 says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Just like Jesus back in one of our encounters, God's the only one who can cast the stone, and he chose not to. So who is left then to bring a charge against us? Somebody has to pay the price. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Again, someone has to pay for the price of our sin. And Paul shares who it was. Look what it says there in Verse 34. Jesus Christ, who died. He's the one that paid the price. Jesus Christ paid the price. Then he goes on to say, more than that... It wasn't just about his death and his his crucifixion. Who was raised to life and is sitting at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for you and I. That's what Jesus is doing. Paul says Jesus died, he rose again. He's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us. He's speaking out on our behalf, defending those who have put their trust in Jesus. And then Paul goes in for the kill shot in verse 35. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. He's making a reference to the persecution that the church was experiencing in real time. And then 37, it says, no, all that persecution, church, all that stuff you're going through right now, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, demons, present nor future, powers, uh, any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, I I pray that you're seeing how desperately Paul wants for us to understand the way and why God loves us because it makes all the difference. There is nothing that you can think of that separates you from the love of God. And if you want to, to measure the love of God, don't look at what's going on in your own life. Just stop doing that. Look to the Christmas story, and then take a good long, hard look at the cross, because they, they go together. But look how Paul uses the word "loved" in verse thirty-seven. I learned this from Wallace Wardick when a professor was at Ozark. He says, it says here, "We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us." Most of the time, when we hear about the love of God, it's in the perfect present tense. Uh, meaning this current and ongoing love for us. But Paul doesn't use the word loves to conclude his argument here. He writes loved. God loved us. And so this word is in the aorist tense participle, which is not just past uh, tense, but rather it's past tense that is referring to a very specific time, event in history. And so the word that Paul uses to, uh, to uh, points us to, is an event where the love of God was demonstrated without question. And we all know he's talking about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, assuring us that God's love is long-suffering, it's constant, and it's final. It is and always will be complete. That's God's love. We see in the life of Christ all the encounters that we went, uh, uh, went through for us in real time, the testimonies of, of the people we know uh, whose lives have been changed, including our eyes because our own because of Jesus Christ. None of that is possible without God coming in the flesh, born of a virgin, born in a humble circumstances, uh, living a, lifeless, a sinless life to become the final blood sacrifice dying on a cross to save his people from their sin. And that doesn't happen for it not... God's love for the world. Everything's tied together. And so my final question to you guys in this particular series is what is keeping you from Jesus? What is keeping you, specifically you, from experiencing the love of God?
0: If you found value in this message, then we want to encourage you to subscribe to this channel. And if you know someone who needs to hear this message, then please share it with them. NLCC has another podcast called The Other Six, where we discuss what it looks like to have an everyday faith on the other six days of the week. You can find that wherever you listen to your podcasts, or there's a video version on our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening in and participating with us. We look forward to doing this again with you next week.